Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could join us today and excited to have four guests. Yes, four on Go Green Radio today. It's going to be a lively conversation. And our topic today is a movement that is afoot. You may have read about it in the New York Times or other uh, publications, but there is something going on that's really familiar to those of us who remember all of the movement to divest from um, companies that were supporting apartheid in South Africa many years ago, there's now a similar movement afoot to divest from fossil fuels. And today we have four guests who are going to talk about this issue from a variety of different perspectives. We have Victoria Fernandez. She is a a student leader at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, They have a, a group called Fossil Free Cal, say that three times fast. She's going to be talking about students' perspective and a recent vote that they took regarding their uh, university endowment. We have Brian Schmidt on the line as well. He's the director of the Santa Clara Valley Water District in California. We also have Brett Fleshman. He is the senior divestment analysis for an organization I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. That's 350.org. And we also have Andy Behar on the line. He is the CEO of a nonprofit organization called As You Sow, which is all about corporate responsibility. And I'm thrilled to death to have all four of them on the line with us today. Brett, I want to start with you. And let's start with a really basic question for the benefit of our listeners who are not economists and are maybe not in finance. What exactly does it mean to, quote unquote, divest from fossil fuels? Hi, Jill. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. So simply put, divestment is the opposite of investment. Generally speaking, institutions like universities and city retirement systems hold their funds, called endowments or pension funds, in the stock market where it can, where it can generate interest. Those investments are spread across all sectors to minimize risk, often called diversification. And generally, institutional investors whose funds are well diversified hold about 10% of their investments in fossil fuel companies, coal, oil, and gas. Uh, divesting from fossil fuels is replacing those companies or about 10% of your investments with something else. Gotcha. All right. So this is basically removing your investments from fossil fuel companies is basically what we're talking about. So Andy, you know, when organizations are looking at the prospect of divesting, what kinds of investments can they replace their current fossil fuel investments with in order to match the return on investment that they were previously enjoying with a, a fossil fuel company investment? Well, it's actually beyond matching it. It's actually, we think it's improving it, that if you look at what's going on in the fossil fuel industry, we believe that there's a massive bubble there, that the companies are, are for the most part, overvalued because they're never going to be able to... Um, they're going to be able to monetize their assets. They're going to have what's called stranded assets, and I'll speak to that a little more in detail later. But if you look at what's happened to the coal industry over the last, since 2010, it's gone down 58% with five bankruptcies. So we think there's a lot of risk in the fossil fuel area. So just from a fiduciary standpoint, you should move your money out. But what you can move it into is there's just hundreds of companies that are creating the new clean infrastructure. And those are the companies that are going to be 
creating the, the new the new world, the green a green planet. And we just published a report actually called Clean Tech Redefined, and we broke it into eight sectors. There's clean energy, efficiency, transportation, water, agriculture, energy storage, air and environment, and clean industry. Hundreds of companies, and the appendix has probably two or three hundred companies listed there that we believe that your broker, your analyst should look at, but a lot of them are doing incredibly well. I mean, obviously people know about Tesla, people know about Solar City. they've um, just made huge returns um, over the last couple of years, and this whole sector is just on the upswing. I've got a quick question for you, Andy, follow-up mm-hmm. to that report. You know, a lot of people made big headlines when Solyndra went under and, mm-hmm. and some other investments, and people are a little nervous. How does your report address um, how to properly identify a company that's, that's going to make it <laughs> for the long haul and be a good investment? Just like you would any company. I mean, when you're I mean, the government invested in Solyndra as if they were a venture capital company. The most mm-hmm. venture capitalists, they, they are going to assume that certainly more than half of their investments are going are to go bankrupt, but that the other half are going to be doing, you know, 5x, 10x. And the government actually did an amazing job. Solyndra was one of a very few companies. About 80% of the government's portfolio, their venture portfolio, actually succeeded. So Solyndra is one example of a technology that actually was a good technology but wasn't timed well against the market. There were a lot of new uh, solar panels were getting much, much cheaper coming from China, and so it wasn't competitive. But I think you have to look at each company, look at the management, look at what their, look at what their patent portfolio is. Look, just, just like you would any company, you have to do your due diligence. I'm not saying every company in this book is going to be a Tesla and you know, go 8x, but many of them will. And the drivers, the basic economic drivers, that every time, for instance, Nest, they just got purchased by Google, um, every time a person installed a Nest thermostat in their home, well, not only is it good for the company Nest, but it also decreases demand for fossil fuels because the reason you put it in your homes is so you can spend less on natural gas and on heating oil. Mm-hmm. So every Nest thermostat means less demand for oil and gas, which means the fossil fuel sector is just going to be getting weaker. So it's, gotcha. it's just a, a, a cycle that um, the more investments that happen over in clean tech infrastructure, the less demand there is for oil and gas. Right. Now, Victoria, you know, you are a part of a, of a movement amongst many universities. UC Berkeley is one um, to divest and, and to encourage the university to remove uh, fossil fuel investments from the university endowment fund. I'm interested in hearing from your perspective what the students were saying before they took a vote on this. What were some of the arguments for divestment? What were some of the arguments against divestment from fossil fuels? Sure. Um, well, you know, as you know, Berkeley students are very conscious. Um, so we got a lot of great questions um, preceding the vote, um, the 73% vote in support of, of divestment for the UC system and UC Berkeley. Students were mostly concerned with um, the school losing money. And so the thing that we did there is just educate people, you know, um, there is risk in being involved in the fossil fuel industry uh, in the long term and that we can make just as much or more investing in clean energy and efficiency uh, under the clean tech that uh, Andy just spoke about. Um, And then also they had concerns that perhaps the university should not be using money um, to make political statements. Um, But I think we answered that in having money in 
um, certain companies is political. It's a political statement saying we support this industry, we support this business model, um, and for our campaign, we just we truly can't um, can't stay behind this business model anymore. Um, it is affecting the the futures of the students who actually go to UC Berkeley. So the university has a, a stewardship to its students to divest its money to ensure that we have a future um, that we can. That we can look forward to, that we can actually thrive in, um, and it's it's counterintuitive to um, be working towards so many clean energy solutions on campus while also be being invested in the fossil fuel industry. And also, we um, talk a lot about how the university does have um, a history of divestment on moral grounds. So, um, as you spoke about earlier, in South Africa, the apartheid, um, and then tobacco in the '90s, and most recently Sudan. So, um, we think that. You know, this is a this is a really good and powerful way to to make this statement. Well, and UC Berkeley students are the cream of the crop. You guys are, are a great university with a lot of smart uh, citizens, and so I'm sure the debates were thorough and and exciting. I would have loved to have watched you guys talk that through. Brian, I'm interested in how you convinced the board of the Santa Clara Valley Water District to divest its, I believe, $400 million financial reserves. Is that right? From fossil fuels last year? Yeah, our, our reserves, financial reserves vary over time. Um, but at one point where we were at that level last year. And uh, I would say that I didn't actually do the job of convincing my fellow board members to divest. It was their own experience of being water directors in California. Um, we have this historic drought that's happening right now. And uh, regardless of whether, whether this drought has been caused by climate change, it kind of basically puts an exclamation point on something that we already know, that uh, climate change is already having and will be having tremendously damaging impacts on uh, California's water. So uh, our water district does uh, water supply, flood control, and environmental restoration for about uh, about 1.9 million people now in, in Silicon Valley. And everything we do is adversely impacted by climate change. So mm-hmm. we just uh, it wasn't hard at all to convince them that we shouldn't be financing the same companies whose business is causing us so much trouble. Now, Brett, I have a question for you, and this is, you know, from a layman's perspective. When organizations divest from fossil fuels, aren't they just selling stocks that other people will end up buying? I mean, in order to divest, you have to you have to find a buyer <laughs> so that you can sell yeah. out. So if that's the case, if really th- there's no, you know, a true money being taken from the fossil fuel industry, how does that exchange of stocks have any effect on fossil fuel companies? Yeah, you're right. Um, when you... Divest. When you move to divest, someone is buying your stock holdings. Um, we've been very clear that divestment in itself won't damage a company, especially those oil giants like Exxon. Um, from a political standpoint, divestment is an opportunity for the public to send a market signal, something like, this is not what I want my future to look like signal. Um, that signal was actually quantified by a group of researchers at Oxford University who found that stigmatization created by divestment campaigns poses a far-reaching threat to companies and industries. That stigmatization also provides political space, a decoupling of politicians and industry to produce restrictive legislation. But from, uh, from the perspective of an institutional investor, 
divestment is minimizing risk. They don't need to worry about whether selling stock will solve climate change. It'd be nice if they would, um, but for them, divestment is about seeing an imminent bubble uh, and avoiding the fallout. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. And I think, you know, there are a history, there's a history of, of that being effective, as we mentioned before, the anti-apartheid, you know, divestment uh, movement did actually do exactly that. So, uh, we've got so much more to cover. There's just so much, you know, involved in this topic, and I'm excited to keep going, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last. Return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just too in our topic today is all about this movement that we are reading about in all kinds of publications about organizations divesting from fossil fuels. And if you Google that, you'll find articles in the New York Times, all kinds of publications about this movement. And there are universities involved, religious organizations, other investment funds. So you got to check into this, but we, our guests today are going to be talking about their unique perspectives and coming from a variety of different types of organizations, what divestment from fossil fuels means to them. Um, 
Andy Behar, I want to ask you a question because you run an organization, as I mentioned in the last segment, um, called As You Sew. And love your website. Um, it's all about corporate social responsibility. Um, but you have a whole section on shareholder advocacy. Now, when we talk about divesting from fossil fuels, we're talking about uh, selling shares of fossil fuel companies. How do you balance divestment from fossil fuels and this notion of shareholder advocacy? Shareholder advocacy is incredibly powerful. We, we've, since 1992, that's what we've been focused on. We've, you know, as you mentioned, we filed shareholder resolutions with many companies on a lot of issues related to climate as well as, as hydraulic fracturing. Um, in the case of the divestment, what we what we advise is that you hold enough shares to continue to file your resolutions, but you get rid of the bulk of it. There's too much risk in the fossil fuels regardless. So you only have to hold $2,000 worth of a stock in order to be a, a shareholder advocate. And so we advise people to, to hold that amount and to file. In fact, as you saw this year, we, um, well, last year we filed the first carbon bubble resolution with Console Energy. This year we filed that same resolution with Console again, Exxon, Chevron, Anadarko, and Hess. And that's all about the risk of, of stranded assets, all of the, all of the reserves, the, the proven reserves that companies have below the ground that they also they have on their balance sheets. They actually have them as assets. They can borrow money against them. And that's how you base the valuation of a company. But if you were to pull all those reserves up from the ground and burn them, you would raise the temperature of the earth five degrees centigrade, which is unacceptable. It has to be maximum two degrees. So three-fifths of those reserves are going to remain underground as stranded assets. So these companies are basically overvalued by 30 to 40 percent. We see about a $20 trillion bubble in the markets. And so wow. that's what we have filed with the companies. So we're using the shareholder method to bring that issue to light and to make it an official an official issue that's going to be in the SEC documents. So when it's a material risk and it's filed by a shareholder and is voted upon by shareholders and it's in their 10K, it's in company documents, it's now something that companies must acknowledge that they were warned that there is this risk. And so the shareholder advocacy is very powerful and it's used in conjunction with divestment. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's one or the other. I think you do both. Got it. Victoria, back to you and what's going on at UC Berkeley. You know, you have chemical engineers, you've got mechanical engineers, and, you know, there are research dollars, I'm sure, that are coming from fossil fuel companies to, you know, fuel their research, fuel their work and their programs. Are you concerned that UC Berkeley might lose research funding from fossil fuel companies as a result of the movement to divest your uh, university endowment fund from fossil fuels? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Jill. Um, and it actually came up just recently. Um, the Graduate Student Assembly, so the student government of the graduate students, um, came. We proposed them with a bill to divest their own funds, um, and there was a concern from some students in the chemistry department that they would lose funding. Um, it was about 30% of the students uh, in the Graduate Student Assembly with this concern. Um, they ended up passing the bill. So um, they, they found that the merits of fuel, fossil fuel divestment perhaps outweighed um, the 
the research money. But that is a real a real concern on our campus. Um, you know, we have a Chevron Auditorium. We have a brand new building just built by uh, by British Petroleum. Um, but I think that it kind of brings up a larger question and a much more concerning one um, about the privatization of of the university and and how these research dollars um, get research started. But 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 not only that, they they can dictate the research and they can um, you know cherry pick the type of research that a university does and that's. That's not the point of university research. That's not the point of a university. Um, and so I think that whenever that question comes up, we need to take a step back and really think about what do those industry dollars mean for our education? What do those industry dollars mean for us moving forward um, past this crisis? Um, so that's that's sort of um, what we what we like to pose um, when the the int- the topic of research funding comes about because it is it is an important question and uh, and students are concerned about the increased privatization of the university what was only nine nine percent of um of our funding coming from the state nowadays so wow and you know that is that really raises an interesting point and one that we've made um, on Go Green Radio before with a number of different topics. Um, for instance, you know, research that's going on in the food industry on universities and, and how much of it is funded by companies who are, you know, involved in GMOs and things like that and, and how mm-hmm. um, partial, how independent and objective um, university research can be if the funding is coming from private companies with a vested interest in a certain outcome. So that's a very interesting question and and very thoughtful. Brian, I'm wondering in your case, you know, you've got a water district uh, in Santa Clara Valley and as you said, that is also known as Silicon Valley <laughs> to those of us uh, who who tag it that way. You've got a huge amount of energy that you know the valley uses to do what it does not just for the state of California but for the world in terms of all of the industry that's going on there. But as a water district, I'm wondering if in addition to divesting your investments from fossil fuels, if you're also looking to transition the energy that your water district uses from fossil fuels to renewable energy, what's going on in that space? Well, the answer is yes, we are looking to transfer as much as we can away from fossil fuels. Um, I think, and this actually goes for, has been going on for long before I even came on the board of the Water District. Um, I think the context of it is just that it, it would be pretty hard to find a water professional in California that does not believe in climate change and the risk that it poses. So when you see that, you, you feel a need to act. And climate divestment is only is one part, an integrated part of a, a broader attempt to get us off of fossil fuels. So we've done it at our water district, even like I said, even before I got there. Um, they put in uh, photovoltaic panels um, and have been looking at other chances to do uh, photovoltaic. And we also have some hydropower as well. Uh, uh, moving water and treating water is an energy-intensive um, action, so it's something that, that takes a lot of energy to, to make happen. We're part of an a intergovernmental agency that buys power, and uh, the, the vast majority of that power is, is low carbon. A lot of it's large hydro, but we're looking at other renewables as well. And then uh, just relatively recently, we uh, instituted our own policy, a goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2020. So uh, everything we can do is kind of working towards that, that effort of, uh, of weaning ourselves from fossil fuels. 
that's really encouraging to hear, Brian, because it's, you know, I don't want to say that divesting from fossil fuels is easy, but in the scheme of things, it is the easiest thing to do when you look at um, all the various activities that an organization like yours would take to address, you know, the amount of carbon that's going into the air. I mean, the harder thing is to do exactly what you said, become carbon neutral um, by investing in carbon-free or low-carbon energy sources to actually conduct the business of your water district. So I think that's terrific. Um, Congratulations to you. Brett, here's a question for you. And I know that 350.org, your organization, um, is really working hard on this divestment strategy. But I'm wondering, you know, where does the majority of investment in fossil fuel companies come from? I mean, is is it banks? Is it large mutual funds? Are you does your strategy for this divestment campaign include the major funders, or are you at this point focused on some of the smaller investors? Yeah, um, actually, real quick, I'd like to speak to the story that Victoria brought up on uh, with the Graduate Student Senate on campus at UC Berkeley. I, I had the honor of um, testifying in front of the Graduate Senate, and I should say of the maybe 80-person Senate, there was only two chemical engineering students who were concerned about their research funding, and the majority of the democratic process was in favor of the move. So this, those that that very loud concern of we're of, of we're worried about our research dollars was um, a tiny majority, a tiny tiny minority. Um, to your question about um, about the size of investors that we're looking at, the the campaign started on campuses where the target is about $400 billion in aggregate endowments. From there, it's spread to pension funds, religious institutions, and other city funds, foundations, um, and then finally to personal, the, uh, personal divestment movement. We actually have a, a self-reporting personal divestment counter on our website where folks can add their voice to the collective, um, sort of like let us know why you divested and then add your number of divested funds to, um, to an aggregate total. Uh, at the moment, the communal number um, of individual divestments is somewhere over 5 million. Wow, that's a lot. That's, that's incredible. Now, how many of those, like what percentage would you say are from the U.S.? All, all of them, probably. Oh. Most, most, mostly all of them. Um, I think that our sort of email blasts and, um, and social media outreach was mostly domestic-based um, because the reporting system was set up that way. And remember, these are, these are just normal folks who might have a small nest egg and then a small percentage of that nest egg, um, usually somewhere between 4 and 10% is invested in fossil fuels. So There's a lot of people who have reported Wow, that's that's significant, though. I mean, in terms of a grassroots movement, that's a lot of people getting on board, regardless of the dollar amount. Um, that's there's a good chance, I would say, that if they're divesting from fossil fuels, they're doing other things in their lives um, to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels as well. I mean, so yeah, that's that's really encouraging. Well, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but there's so much more when we come back. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. 
Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only just joined us, don't worry, we'll catch you up. Our topic today is the movement to divest from fossil fuels. And we're talking with four different guests today who have a variety of, of perspectives. You know, when I'm thinking about fossil fuels, my mind goes back to most recent events, like for instance, the chemical spill in the river in West Virginia. And those chemicals we found were used to clean coal before it goes um, to coal plants to uh, to create electricity and then not long after that the um, Duke Energy um, coal ash spill into a river there in North Carolina and as you read those stories you, you get little snippets of things like a coal company going bankrupt and then you hear about you know a, a, the chemical company filing for chapter 13 and, and Andy you and I have spoken previously and you talked about some interesting facts about why you believe that divesting from fossil fuels will happen eventually if it isn't happening already just simply because um, you know th- those companies in some respects are, are flailing and I'm wondering if you would share some more information on that with our listeners about the economic and fiduciary reasons why uh, this is a good idea anyway even if it's not you know based on some uh, climate change call to action, just from an economic perspective, what, what do you know? Share that with us. Absolutely. I mean, just beyond the, the moral argument and beyond the argument that we do need to have a planet to sustain our lives of ourselves and our children, grandchildren, etc., going to the future, um, just purely on a fiduciary basis, 
Um, I, I believe that many colleges have already divested from coal. I think that their their financial managers would have had to just. I mean, if you look at the number of of bankruptcies of uh, Patriot Coal, of America's Energy, of Clearwater, Consolidated, James River, all these companies got gone bankrupt since 2010, and the overall you took all aggregate of all the coal companies, uh, they've gone down 58 percent. So, I, 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 my feeling is probably a lot of colleges they actually knew what they were holding, which many of them don't, um, would look at it and go, "Wow, we've already divested from coal." And so they could actually make a statement and say we've divested from coal and now we're going to be looking at the other ones, which would be, I think, really helpful and um, be really good for the students as well because this is something that is just a trend that, that is happening, um, you know, regardless. And I think that there's also a lot more exposure. You mentioned the Duke coal ash spill. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not forget there's 2,000 of these impoundments all over the country. Mm-hmm. Each one holds about 2 billion gallons of the most toxic substance. If, if your listeners don't know... In the U.S., we produce 165 million tons of coal ash a year. We mix it with water into a slurry, and we pipe it out into these unlined ponds. They're humongous. I mean, they're just acres and acres um, of, of an impoundment that, with all the mercury, the cadmium, the lead, seeping down into our groundwater, or many of them are sitting right on the bank of the river, Little Blue Run, one of the biggest ones that was just recently closed, is sitting right on the bank of the Ohio River. So we're being exposed to all of these toxins. Now, the, the TVA spill in 2008 that wiped mm-hmm. out the town of Kingston, Tennessee, and the more recent one at Duke that's um, in the town of Eden, North Carolina, those are just two examples of 2,000 of these ponds that have aging infrastructure that are you know, going to be breaking and going to be exposing. It, it's the biggest, it's beyond a Superfund cleanup. And the EPA, they put out a, a rule about this in, in 2010 in reaction to, to the TVA spill, and they still haven't actually decided whether they're going to demand that all these companies dewater all these ponds and store it all in lined, um, lined landfills and cap them, or whether they're just going to let the current system be. Um, but whatever that decision is, there's huge liability for, for Duke Energy and all of these utilities and it's going to drive them away from coal because, you know, frankly, they could uh, be putting up using their, their capital to build solar, to build wind, which once you build it, the only cost is servicing your debt. There's no more commodity. There's mm-hmm. pricing. There's no more risk of environmental hazards. So mm-hmm. I think this is a trend, and we're seeing it in our shareholder advocacy work, our, our interactions with First Energy we just withdrew mm-hmm. a resolution because we were asking them to look at broadening distributed power. And, and a similar withdrawal is happening with Southern. We're talking to Ameren. We're talking to Entergy. So all of these big utilities are looking at it and going, we're losing our biggest customers, our big box stores, because they mm-hmm. can put solar on their roof. They can lock in a 20-year. Um, they know that they can buy their power for between 3 and $0.10 cents a kilowatt, and commodity-based power is going to be fluctuating. So the companies want stability, and so they're going to be doing it themselves. So if the utilities mm-hmm. don't do it by putting in the distributed power, they're going to be out of business. And they realize that. They're smart people. And so this is the conversation that we're having with basically all of the large utilities around the country. 
It's such an exciting transition. I mean, really, it, it is. I mean, things are, are, you know, a lot of people are unaware of this. You know, they flip on the switch and the lights go on and no clue where all that comes from. But for those of us watching how this is all playing out, it's a very exciting time. And, and Speaking one, one of other, it, just one other note is that people sure. actually can do things. I mean, people can. I know I personally, I don't wash with hot water. Uh, you know, just saving gas. I mean, mm-hmm. people, you know, are turning off lights, they're using LEDs. I mean, people say, oh, does that make a difference? It does. It you sure know? does. It, it really it, does. It does. And speaking of making a difference, students at UC Berkeley are kind of famous for that, Victoria. I mean, <laughs> from the 60s on up, you all, <laughs> your alumni and in the current student population, um, you know, you're movers and shakers, and everybody knows that. Um, I'm curious to know, after the students at UC Berkeley voted in favor of divesting from fossil fuels, what happened then? I mean, do you guys have an ongoing education campaign of any kind to keep students informed about how their vote is making a difference in the world? What are you doing with that? Sure, sure, definitely. Um, Yeah, so we table every week, um, just letting students know about our progress. And we have um, a a large listserv of people that we've gotten um, who want to stay updated on the campaign. So we're definitely doing our best to notify students of um, our progress and how we're still moving forward with this. And the ways that we're doing that, of course, are, you know, we just passed the Graduate Student Assembly Resolution, which was fantastic, Um, just building a lot more support. And this semester, we hope to pass an academic Senate resolution. So that would be a, a faculty support. And then we're also trying to let people really know about this task force that we created um, with the UC Regents. Um, January 22nd, the Regents agreed, okay, we will put two Regents on a task force um, and also have students and faculty on that to do a feasibility report of divestment. What would divestment look like? How would we do it? Um, And we're very, very excited because Janet Napolitano, um, the UC president, stated that she would like the UC system to be carbon neutral by 2025. And we really see fossil fuel divestment as a way to make our investments carbon neutral as well, which is a big part of the UC. Um, and so that's another thing that we're really trying to let people know about. There's also going to be a national student conference for divestment, April 4th to the 6th at San Francisco State University, which is really, really exciting. Um, because it's a national movement, it really shows how students all across the country are working really, really hard um, to see to see divestment happen. Um, San Francisco State University divested from tar sands and coal last year. So I think it's a really um, symbolic place to have to have this gathering um, at not a small liberal arts college, but a very large state institution, um, especially in California. It's it's really powerful. And then we're also going to be holding a panel um, on campus at UC Berkeley on April 10th um, with, you know, with financial experts and faculty um, and students to just continue the education um, about fossil fuel divestment, the merits of it, why it's so, so necessary. Um, and then we have also met with um, our, our chancellor, Chancellor Dirks really letting um, him know that this is what students care about. This is what students want to see um, as soon as possible. So that's um, sort of our education campaign and what's been going on uh, at UC Berkeley and at the UC level. 
That's very exciting, Victoria. Way to lead. Way to lead. <laughs> I hope that you'll capture as much of this on video and pictures and share it all on your social media sites because I know that a lot of us would love to see how you guys uh, do this and, and how the conversations unfold. So uh, try try your best to keep us all in the loop because if I could tune in on YouTube, I would. That would be awesome. Of course, sure. <laughs> Brian, I wonder, you know, are you seeing other water agencies in California interested in following your lead? Are you getting uh, any kind of communication from other water districts across the state to say, hey, how did you do this? Uh, how can we divest? What's the, what's the scoop? Um, are, are you getting any kind of indication that there might be uh, more movement amongst water agencies to do what you've done? Well, I would say there's uh, bad news and good news on that, on that front. <laughs> So uh, the bad news would be that, uh, that uh, while uh, water agencies are increasingly interested in, in climate change issues, I have not seen a lot of focus on this climate divestment issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of it is just they're not as well, many of them, while they know a lot about climate change, they're not as well informed about climate divestment as your listeners are right mm-hmm. now from what's happened. It's still under the radar for some people. So I think there is a lot of concern about climate change, and people are looking at different ways to do it. Um, I'd say the good news is that a lot can happen, and it can happen quickly. It mm-hmm. took us six weeks from when I wrote the first memo alerting, to, alerting my fellow board members to this issue to enacting a policy and putting a policy in place where we would have no new investments in fossil fuels. So Did you I, already have a, a climate change plan in place when you – you know, did the board already have some kind of framework for for dealing with climate change in this way, or was this sort of the first action that you took along these lines? Uh, no, it wasn't the first action by any means. So I, I think that a lot of other water agencies have already taken action, so this could fit into fit in well with everything else that they're doing. So we already had a aggressive program to address climate change and mitigate our own emissions, um, and a lot to adapt to climate change, particularly flooding impacts and water supply impacts. So this is this was another reason why I think it passed unanimously with no opposition on the board is mm-hmm. they saw how this fit into our broader our broader project. Well, then here's an idea. How about when we have the archive broadcast of this episode you send the link out to all of your fellow water agencies in California and see if they wouldn't do the same thing. I mean, this it seems to be um, something that would fit, as you said, very nicely within a broader scheme of climate policy. What are some of the other things that are, you know, that are components of your climate change? Um, you've got flood mitigation. Um, what, what are some of the other things that you're doing along those lines? Well, we're on flooding. We're, we are, Silicon Valley is right by San Francisco Bay, so we have the same sea level rise concerns as many other places do. So when we're dealing with flooding, we are sizing our flood control projects like the creeks that go into the bay and would be affected by sea level rise. We're sizing them to anticipate 50 years of sea level rise. So that's a good example of a, that's a cost to us that we're, we're incurring and our ratepayers are incurring today and taxpayers are incurring today because of that. Um, and then uh, the big issue, again, looking at the California drought right now, is with water supply as well and what's going to happen to our major water storage, the snow in the Sierras. Um, and we're trying to, trying to find our ways to be more locally reliable instead of their current situation where we get over half of our water from the Sierras. So mm-hmm. we're looking into recycling wastewater 
and uh, turning it into drinking water ultimately, which I think is a is a way to go. It's a matter of getting public acceptance, but it, it has a it's a local source. Something could really help us. And finally, we're trying to bring back San Francisco Bay, which is the Everglades of the West, and bring it back in time to anticipate sea level rise to get the wetlands back. But Jill, as far as getting in touch with other water agencies, I thought I would try and uh, extend a special offer 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 to your listeners, which is if they were to contact their local water agency officials and tell them, get in touch with me at Santa Clara Valley Water District, I'll spend as much time as I want to talk to them about our experience. If they're local, I'll come and come and talk to them in person. That is awesome, Brian. Great offer. Listeners, did you catch that? Santa Clara Valley Water District. Get in touch with Brian. He's the director. And uh, encourage your water district, your local water district. You need to know these folks anyway. You voted them in. Um, And encourage them to do the same. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio. So don't go away, folks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I want to give a big shout out to all my tweeps. Thanks for following me on Twitter. You can too if you're not already. My handle is at Jill Buck. Let's keep the conversation going after we're off the air. Um, Brett, I want to ask you a question. You know, it seems like the most effective way to really get fossil fuel uh, energy sort of out of our system or at least reduced would be to go to the utility companies. I mean, they're the ones that are buying fossil fuel energy, right? So I'm wondering if you have any campaign that would ask utilities not to buy certain types of energy. Uh, what, what is going on in that space? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure there are local campaigns working with their utilities to make a transition. Um, I, I at 350 and a big group of us are working specifically on divestment. And I should say that divestment 
is only a part of a whole, of a greater movement to minimize the worst effects of climate change. Um, of course, I take my hat off to the work being done on fracking and the Keystone Pipeline and tar sands. And in fact, uh, for those listeners in California, go tell Governor Brown you want to stop, stop fracking in California at a rally in Sacramento on the 15th uh, next weekend. And you can learn more by going to don'tfrackcalifornia.org. Gotcha. How do you measure how effective your divestment campaign is? I mean, how do you know that you've measured success? I mean, what says we made it? What what data points are you looking for to say this was an awesome campaign? We accomplished something. Um, that's a that's a good question. That's a great question. Um, this is a this is a long term strategic campaign with both direct and indirect goals. Um, it took ten years or so in a mix of other efforts for the South Africa apartheid divestment campaign to lead to legislation. Obviously, drastically minimizing carbon through regulation is part of the end game, um, but there's also an effort to redirect capital into more sustainable sources of energy and more equitable, equitable systems of distribution, um, as Andy was talking about. There's also the shining light on industry, money, and politics and a few other paradigm-shifting goals. Um, but I think if we can measure success by the sheer number of divestment campaigners, um, already this is the fastest growing divestment campaign in history. Students on 350 campuses across the states and more across the globe are, are engaged in profound discourse with CIOs and boards of trustees about our collective future. It's an, it's an exciting time to be awake politically. If we measure mm-hmm. success by inspiration, we're doing pretty well. Great. Hey, Andy, I've got a question for you. You know, you have really spoken to the economics of, of what's going on with fossil fuels and some of the risks that you foresee and, and that a lot of folks in the finance industry see with fossil fuels, some of the... Um, you know, some of the liabilities that are inherent in the fossil fuel industry. But, you know, big oil and big coal companies are not stupid. I mean, they're not in it to lose. Uh, if if they're seeing what you're seeing, it seems like it won't be long before we hear Chevron being big sun <laughs> and big wind. Um what do you see in terms of fossil fuel companies potentially transitioning to big energy versus big oil or big coal? Well, you're going to be seeing the utilities doing this very quite rapidly just to save their business models. Um, and because they're getting so much competition, the price of solar has come down so much that it's just frankly much less expensive to, uh, to generate power with, with alternatives. Last year, 99% of all new energy in this country was renewable with solar and wind. Um, you can't build a coal plant anymore. They're out of the 150 that were... Um, that were planned in 2008, only one is still under construction and it's a billion dollars over budget. Um, so it's, it's, it's inevitable. And I think the sooner that Exxon stops spending $100 million a day to look for new oil reserves that they'll never be able to actually commercialize and just create more stranded assets for themselves and their shareholders, they'll start investing in infrastructure. And they will be able to become an energy provider to the grid, they'll be able to start building. They've got the deep pockets to be able to build transmission lines, to be able to put up large-scale solar. And particularly interesting is solar that generates not a photovoltaic, but actually you know, uses solar thermal. 
And the reason for that is because during the day when the sun is concentrated, it heats up um, the system, and so that can last over into the night, which is when wind generally picks up in the night. So it will create a balanced grid. So all this is, um, you know, all this, you know, has been modeled. All this, there's, if everyone hasn't, they should read Amory Lovin's book, Redefining, um, you know, Redefining Fire. And it um, really lays out a 10-year plan about how we can get 100% off of fossil fuels. Looks at the looks at the transportation industry, looks at the building industry, looks at the energy industry, and says with technology we have today, with no new invention, we can do this if we just shift capital from the old fossil fuels into this new clean energy future. And um, it's absolutely doable. It's just a matter of the political will, which is going to come from people demanding that policy gets put in place to inspire us to become a nation of energy farmers. You, you look at Germany, I mean, they're on the same latitude as, uh, as Montreal, and they're generating huge amounts of, of their power with solar. It can be done. It's just a matter of making a decision that this is the future we want, envisioning it, and, and, and people making it happen. Mm-hmm. I like that term that you used, energy farmers. Uh, that's that's a great term, and I, I may use that over and over again. I love that. That's well, that's a cool way to think of it. Well, I know that you know I have solar on my roof. I would have put up twice the size system if I could sell it back to the grid because yeah. then I would be making money. But because I can't, because of the net metering, that I can only get down to a zero. Mm-hmm. That's the limit of the system. And if so, so that, and that's just a policy decision. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've talked about net metering. We'd love to have you come back on. I like that subject. We've talked about it before on Go Green Radio. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's where a lot of that, that happens. Victoria, I'm going to ask you to close the show in the last couple of minutes that we have left and look into your crystal ball. Hmm. What do you hope your divestment campaign and the larger divestment campaign will accomplish? How do you hope the world will be different when you get your first gray hair? <laughs> when you get your first wrinkle, how will the world be different if this campaign achieves your greatest hopes? Uh, those wrinkles and gray hairs will be uh, welcome. If uh, Basically what I hope that this divestment campaign um, is successful in is creating a clean and just economy, Um, you know, creating an economy where low-income communities, particularly those of color, no longer bear the burden of the fossil fuel industry. We have four refineries um, in the North Bay alone um, whose communities are really, really impacted um, um, by the fossil fuel industries that that are present there. And, you know, I hope that this divestment campaign really brings about true political change, true political um, engagement and public ownership of, of this crisis. And um, I think this campaign and this movement means holding our institutions accountable. It's, we're starting, personally, I'm starting with um, the University of California, but I think it goes much further than that. It goes to our mm-hmm. political institutions um, so that they're accountable well to us and not beholden to um, these fossil fuel giants. Um, I like your vision, Victoria, and I hope we get there. Um, I would like to thank all of you for joining us today on Go Green Radio, and thanks to our listeners. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.